The subject for the talk this evening is Thinking Without Believing. As we sit here, something very mysterious, something beyond explanation is taking place. Right here and right now. You and I are conscious, aware, being touched by contact with the outer world through our five senses and touched by contact with the inner world of thoughts and feelings through the mind. And really, if we come right down to it, we don't actually know how and why it is happening like this. We can observe and describe the process and we can describe the content of our experience but as to how we come to be here in this body with this mind in this world and how the sensory world itself comes to be here this is a mystery if we take a moment to reflect on how much we don't know it can be very powerful be willing to come face to face with the vastness of all that is requires that we do not make it smaller by containing it within a concept or a belief. To stand beneath the starlit sky, uncomprehending and not needing to comprehend, is to be both humbled and exalted. To rest in not knowing is one of the great arts of the spiritual life. But we are not often in touch with the imminence of mystery because often our minds are dominated by the sense of knowing. Our knowledge and belief systems take on the guise of being the truth and we do not remember to question to seek for what is true. And what we must ask ourselves is what we think the truth? Are our thoughts worth believing in? When we believe in the truth of the contents of our thoughts they become the basis of limitation and the manifestation of delusion. We are fooling ourselves into being bound by what the thoughts are saying. Whenever we think in absolutes, this is the way it is, or the way I am, or the way you are, this is the way it is. We are attempting to capture reality in a concept. Believing in such definitive statements absolutely leaves no room for doubt and it fails to take account of the possibility and perhaps likelihood that such a definition may be less than the actual and absolute truth. Forgetting that our reasoning processes produce descriptions, representations and models not the real thing. 
Believing absolutely in definitive statements also leaves no room for the reality of change. Even if the definitional description is correct insofar as it appears to describe the reality or the truth of our past or present experience, of ourselves or of others or of the world, it will almost inevitably lead to limitation and struggle when our experience changes, as it is bound to do. And in changing, no longer conforms with what our definitive conclusions lead us to believe. So even an accurate belief is only going to be accurate for a limited period of time. The known is based on what has already gone by and is inextricably bound to it. It cannot be any valid basis for meeting this moment's reality with wisdom. To hold on to our belief systems about anything, particularly about ourselves, it may give a sense of safety and security to ourself, as it is through holding on to appearing to know that our self can attempt to control its experience. Although there is a great attraction in the apparent security which control offers, holding on to a belief system is very, very painful <coughs> when our experience doesn't correspond to the model and our control is found to be illusory. By its very nature, Definition equates to limitation. The price of knowing, of control and of security is contraction and becoming bound. When we do not hold on to knowing, do not invest in believing what our thoughts are saying, then we can be said to have an open mind. And I'd like to quote something that Nyanaponika, a Buddhist monk, said on the relationship between wisdom and an open mind. True wisdom is always young and always near to the grasp of an open mind which has painfully reached its heights and earned its chance to hear it. An open mind is one that is not holding on to or bound by belief systems. And it is this very open mind that is the receptacle for wisdom. This doesn't mean that beliefs and thoughts of knowing do not arise in the mind, but that we are not fooled into believing that what they are saying is the truth. With an open mind, we can really hear, we can really see, and in that seeing, in that hearing, unbound to belief systems, understanding comes by itself. So we need to look carefully at the sense of knowing, look carefully at what happens when we believe that our conceptual knowledge our labels and descriptions do truly and accurately represent 
the way things are. When we come into contact with a thing, if we meet it with a sense of I know, then we do not actually see and experience the thing itself, but the concept with which we label it. So when we see, for example, a fly buzzing around a window pane, if we relate to that experience from our knowledge, we may say to ourselves, that is a fly, as if we really understand the totality of what a fly is. And we may have the association that flies are noisy and dirty and seek to banish the fly from our presence. But if we should question that sense of knowing, we may discover that, in fact, we have not a clue as to how that creature comes to be there, as to how it comes to be alive, as to what it really and essentially is. And we may even be struck by a metaphor in the fly's behaviour for our, our own situation, as it tries to fly through a pane of glass. Not so dissimilar from some of our own behaviours, where through not understanding our situation, we repeatedly engage in hopeless endeavours, such as trying to gain lasting satisfaction from pleasant experiences. Not realising that just as a fly cannot reach the outside by flying through the glass, neither can we reach happiness by pursuing our desires. In such moments, when we acknowledge that we don't really know, a deep sense of mystery can touch us. When we think that we know, experience is mundane and dull. Just another breath, just another sound. But when we, so when we do not experience freshly and free from the sense of knowing what is going on, in absolute terms, we are easily seduced into pursuing pleasure for gratification as an antidote to the dullness of knowing. But actually we don't know exactly how and why our experience comes to be this way. When we are not invested in the sense of I know, then it, be it becomes hard to dismiss any experience the fly, a breath, just a leaf falling out of the tree. Even the most ordinary becomes fresh and mysterious. And then it doesn't seem to be an effort to be present. And it doesn't need any effort in order to be content. Another aspect of the effect of knowing or believing we know is that when we believe this idea that I know, we feel safe. Knowing is bound up with control and security, as I said. When we feel safe, we act habitually. It doesn't seem necessary to really be there and to act carefully. When we think we know what's going on, when we think we're safe, and we easily lapse into mechanical, reactive, habitual behaviour. But if we contrast, when we enter an unfamiliar situation, one in which we don't know what's going on, 
we quite naturally pay greater attention and we make an effort to consciously evaluate the appropriateness of our behaviours, our actions and our responses. So when we remember that our sense of knowing needs to really be questioned and really looked at carefully before we rely on it. This provides a very strong encouragement for staying present, being there in order to have the best possible chance of finding in any situation the most appropriate and skillful action. I'd like to read something from Seng Tsang. If you don't live the way, you fall into assertion or denial. Asserting that the world is real, you are blind to its deeper reality. Denying that the world is real, you are blind to the selflessness of all things. The more you think about these matters, the farther you are from the truth. Step aside from all thinking, and there is nowhere you cannot go. Returning to the root, you find the meaning. Chasing appearances, you lose their source. At the moment of profound insight, you transcend both appearance and emptiness. Don't keep searching for the truth. Just let go of your opinions. So if we are interested in freedom, we need to carefully examine what we believe. Much of our belief systems are unconscious and operating without being clearly questioned. They are revealed through the thoughts and conclusions which we hold on to and invest with a sense of being the truth. Often when confronted with a situation or by an experience which we find difficult or challenging or just unpleasant, we can quickly begin to think that something is wrong. Sitting, trying to be present, we may find that instead of a calm moment-to-moment attention, our consciousness is beset by painful emotionally charged memories into which we are drawn and by which we feel consumed. And very easily we can begin to think and believe that something is wrong. Either something is wrong with me, my mind isn't suitable for meditation, my history is too painful or too difficult, or something is wrong outwardly, This meditation practice just isn't working. It must be the wrong meditation. Or maybe it's just the wrong time. Something is wrong, screams the mind. When we believe these thoughts, they can quickly start to influence us and we try to change things so they won't be wrong. And rather than seeking to deepen our understanding, we become consumed by strategies to try and fix 
what we perceive to be wrong. And in this, it's important to realize that what is happening is much more closely related to the difficulty or the challenge or the unpleasantness of our experience, which we are seeking to get rid of, avoid or change, than to any wrongness it actually has. To label it as something wrong gives a highly charged justification for our reaction of aversion. So when we're saying something is wrong, it's not so much that it's wrong, it's just that we don't like it. Behind this movement lies a belief that there are some objective criteria for determining the content of our experience as either right or wrong. Otherwise, how could we do it? But rightness and wrongness have their validity in terms of ethical conduct. In relationship to conscious action, which may be harmful, and we can clearly see is wrong, or is non-harming, and we can clearly see this is right. But right and wrong have little value as labels for our experience. And when we look at it, what we feel to be right is often what is easy, pleasant and comfortable or satisfying. And what feels wrong is that which is difficult, painful or unpleasant. Now to take those feelings, those fleeting transitory feelings, as the basis for believing experiences to be right or wrong, is to presume that this entire universe was created and exists for our personal convenience and that life's vast unfoldment is purely in order to satisfy our own personal preferences. Now this may seem laughable when we put it in such terms, but often our resistance to, our aversion to, and our denial or suppression and conflict with our experience is based on the underlying belief that things should not be the way they are because the way they are is not how we would like them to be. Aversion, resistance and denial all have the effect of pushing away our experience, pushing it away because we don't like it. But in fact what we need to do is to come closer to it in order to be clear about what is happening, to understand the actuality of the situation. So long as we are resisting or denying the truth of our experience, we cannot understand it. And through understanding, end our bondage to it. So we need to carefully and honestly question whether this belief system is operating. Is something wrong? How could things be in any way other than as they are? Another area of belief which we encounter concerns the thoughts that arise making statements such as I can't or I need. These thoughts suggest fixed limits on what is possible for us. They can have an authority 
that binds us to act as if their contents are true. For instance, I can't cope with this pain in my leg. I just can't. Or I must have eight hours sleep. I must. When we believe in this type of thinking, it creates boundaries within which we are confined and it denies our capacity, the human capacity we have, to explore what may be possible for us. A belief that a certain course of action is beyond our ability to engage in, or a particular consequence of an action is beyond our capacity to cope with, is much more often rooted in the risk that that course of action or the consequence would be difficult, perhaps very difficult and challenging, rather than actually being impossible. So it's not a question of impossible or I can't, but I'm not really sure if I want to, because it may be difficult. Yet when the associations suggest a high degree of difficulty, the conditioned tendency is to avoid the difficult and the challenging in favour of what is familiar and what is safe. And that conditioned avoidance tendency brings its weight to bear by generating fear at the prospect of going beyond the boundaries we have set. So when we consider what it might mean to have less sleep, <coughs> fear arises. And in not wanting to experience that fear, which is essentially an unpleasant experience, we seek to avoid that which gives rise to the fear. The prospect of going beyond the limits of what is safe and known. And the way that avoidance is made legitimate is through the belief system of limitation. I can't, I need. Now, there is a vast difference between thinking and believing in terms of these kind of absolutes. And understanding that behind such thinking lies the actuality that while something may well be difficult or impossible, at the same time, it may not. It may not be difficult. It may not be possible. It may be possible. And the only way to discover this to not be bound by what has happened in the past, but to be willing to step beyond the boundaries we perceive in the present, to explore our possibilities. And just questioning the absolute belief that we often unconsciously give to such thinking can open the possibility, just like that, of no longer living in the shadow of the belief in limitation. Now this isn't to say that there isn't wisdom in some degree of caution and in respecting that we're only human. But we are not obliged to give authority to fear. We can choose to explore, to make a wise response to our situation and wise choices. And we can choose to not submit to a belief system based in fear that would deny our true human potential.
in many ways the most powerful and all-pervasive belief system and pattern of thinking concerns our sense of being someone. I am, I am this, I am not that. I am, usually followed by a definition or a description. If we take these thoughts to be telling the truth, if we believe in the contents of these statements and are invested in them, then we find that they become the bars of a cage in which we are held. The absolute and inflexible belief, I am, something, does not take into account the truth of change. Often we have come to think I am, for instance, a fearful person, based on past experiences in which we felt to be under the influence and power of fear. We base our description on the past and impose that in the present. I was fearful, therefore I am fearful. Then we project it into the future. I am fearful and I will always be fearful. As though somehow what has happened in the past sets an absolute limit on the present and the future. Or similarly, we can do the same with a, what we may regard as a positive self-perception. I am a successful person. I was successful therefore I am successful. I am successful, therefore I will be successful. But when we assume a fixed description such as this about ourselves to be the truth, we are bound to come into conflict with reality when our experiences in the present do not fit in with the model which we have created. Often this leads to denial and repression of the difficult. We cannot cope with our failures if we atta are attached to a self-image of being successful. Or it leads to an inability to acknowledge and honour our positive qualities. We may not trust in our capacity for courage if we are attached to believing that we are fearful. Holding on to our descriptions is the basis for forming conclusions and making judgments about ourselves. And we do much the same in the way that we relate to other people, if we're not conscious of it. This can lead to rejection or non-appreciation of ourselves, of others. And we are blinded to the good and beautiful qualities which are present in ourselves and in others. But when we acknowledge that we don't really know the whole truth about ourselves or about another, then we open to a fresh way of seeing. We open to the possibility of connecting with all that is good and wonderful and wholesome in that person, in ourselves, in the world. This sense of not knowing has a special quality of grace, of giving the benefit of the doubt, which can have a profound effect. I feel this is nicely illustrated in a story I would like to read to you. 
if I can find it. This story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order, as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries, and the rise of secularism in the 19th, all its branch houses were lost, and it had become decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house, the abbot and four others, all over seventy in age. Clearly it was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. Through their many years of prayer and contemplation, the old monks had become a little bit psychic, so they could always sense when the rabbi was in his hermitage. The rabbi is in the woods. The rabbi is in the woods again. They would whisper to each other. As he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice which might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot at his hut. But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of the people. It is the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. Then they read parts of the Torah and spoke quietly of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said, but I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice you can give me that would help me to save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, Well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us? Could he have possibly meant that one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Yes, if he meant anyone, he probably meant Father Abbot. He has been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly, Brother Thomas is a holy man. 
everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. Certainly, he could not have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But, come to think of it, even though he is a thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Elred is almost always right. Very often right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred. But surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive. A real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there, just when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet, supposing he did. Supposing I am the Messiah. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect, on the off chance that one among them might be the Messiah. <laughs> and on the off-off chance, that each monk himself might be the Messiah, <laughs> they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander along some of its paths, even now and then to go into the, the dilapidated chapel to meditate. And as they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why, they began, began to come back to the monastery more frequently, to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them this special place. And their friends brought their friends. And then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one asked if he could join them. Then another then another. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. perhaps sometime we may stop and ask ourselves do we really know who we are and what our potential is and it's not just the descriptions of ourselves it's not just our self images which we need to very carefully examine and question but also and more subtly the very notion I am which assumes that what we are is a fixed and solid entity, 
a separate individual being who can be defined and described. Running through all the belief systems, or most of them, that I've talked about, I want, I am, I can't, I need, I know, is this theme of I. And the basic reason that so much of our belief systems, so much of our self-descriptions will always be misleading is that when we believe in them, we are investing in the false notion of self. A false idea that what we are is something somehow separate and removed from everything else. Something that has an individual essence which is unique and unchanging. A fundamental understanding to which this practice is geared is developing the wisdom that sees and understands the dissolution of our belief in a separate selfhood as existing in ourself and any separate selfhood as existing in any other being or anything. The thoughts I am, I am this or I am not that arise as a result of the conditions we are in and we do not need to eradicate the thoughts themselves but we need to dissolve the power that they have. When we see these belief structures clearly we realize that we are not bound to give them the authority of absolute truth. And when we can say to the self-descriptions, to the sense of separate selfness, maybe this is not the truth, then we have already created much space and opened ourselves to the touch of a deeper wisdom. And when we realize in the depths of our hearts that our belief systems can never actually represent the truth. Then we are released from the suffering which investing in them causes. If we take the metaphor where the belief systems we hold on to are like the bars of a cage of limitation and suffering, then it is worth considering that to escape from a cage doesn't require that the cage itself be demolished. In fact, if this were done while we were in the cage, we may well not survive it. To escape from a cage is to no longer be confined within its boundaries, though the walls and the bars may still be standing. In the same way, we do not need to bring about the cessation of the thinking mind, but to understand that we are not contained within it, nor defined by it. And when we rest in the seeing of thought, rather than believing in it, belief systems have no power to bind us. When we are not bound by our belief systems, our heart, our mind, our very being becomes fertile soil for the seed of transforming wisdom which lies within us. I'd like to finish with a quotation from Kalu Rinpoche, a Tibetan Lama. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. 
there is a reality you are that reality when you understand this you will see that you are nothing and being nothing you are everything that is all May all beings see into life. May all beings see into thought. May all beings be touched by mystery. Shall we sit quietly for a minute or two?